crowd than we normally have at 10 o'clock, but here's the deal. It's time change weekend, and we had an extraordinarily large crowd last night of people who were just too lazy to even think about today. So they came to church last night, and then here's the deal. My donut bribe was pretty successful this morning at 845. We had a really good crowd at 845. We lost about half of our Sunday school teachers because of the children who were hyped up on sugar uh, from the donuts. But it was a good morning. Hey, grab a Bible and go with me to Matthew chapter 5. I'm always thankful for whoever's here, and uh, we always have a great time together as we worship. Matthew chapter 5. Look at this uh, slide on the screen for just a moment. On Easter weekend, uh, we, uh, we have big, big plans. We have two Good Friday services, two Saturday services, three Sunday services. In the middle of all of that, we're doing something that we really have never done before, at least not since I've been here. We're going to do a community-wide Easter egg hunt across the street, the Community Life Center, on Saturday, April 15th, from 10 o'clock to, to uh, noon, and it'll be like our fall fun fest, except with an Easter theme. We'll have bounce houses, refreshments, all kinds of really fun things, thousands of eggs for your kids. Uh, we'll divide that up so the big kids aren't trampling the little kids when it comes to picking up the eggs. And so we're advertising it, but would you promote that? Just word of mouth, just talk to your friends, neighbors, family, co-workers, everybody you know. We'd love to have a lot of guests show up for our Easter egg hunt. And I want to do something else real quick because uh, this, I'm glad that I saw this this morning, but we have some really special guests with us in this service. Uh, for over 25 years, Mount Pleasant has been supporting Eric and Dee Duggins uh, as missionaries in Mexico and uh, Impacto Latino. And they're here this morning. Would you guys just stand up for a moment? I want you to give them a really, really warm welcome. They've been serving in Mexico, primarily overseeing the planting of churches, which have resulted in some great, great churches with lots and lots and lots of brothers and sisters in Christ. And I've been there, uh, and they've got a new venture going on now, and uh, we're just really thankful for that partnership and thankful to have them here in our service today. Well, we work, we're working our way verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, we're in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And in particular, we're in the very introductory part of Matthew chapter 5 in a passage of Scripture called the Beatitudes. And uh, the reason why I chose to do this study a few months ago is because I, I, really, I really feel like we live in a world where a lot of people are negative about the church, but at the same time, they're positive about Jesus. Got a low opinion of the church for a lot of different reasons we don't even want to talk about. Some valid, some not valid. But those people still have a high opinion of Jesus. So I want you to know everything that you can about Jesus. I want you to know who he was, what he came into the world to do, and what he offers to ordinary people like you and me when we follow him. And I think you really see that uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, and in particular uh, in this uh, passage called the Beatitudes, because it really talks to us about what it is required to follow Jesus. So if you got your Bibles open there, let's not waste any more time. Stand together with me in reverence and respect for God's Word like we always do. We make the public reading of Scripture part of our service. I want to welcome everybody joining us online. We're so glad that you're here, home in your pajamas, uh, wherever you might be, but I hope you got your Bible open to Matthew 5. I'm thankful that you're worshiping with us. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8 in particular today, but as we've done every week, let's read the entire passage of the Beatitudes. You follow along, beginning in verse 1. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And here's our beatitude for today. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are, will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always pray God's blessing on the reading and hearing of His Word. Let's just remind ourselves of those two fundamental truths that we've talked about each week that are essential to understanding the Beatitudes. The first one is this, God promises happiness that's real. God promises happiness that's real. That word blessed that we read there, Jesus uses nine different times in those first 12 verses. It's the Greek word makarios. It's translated blessed in our English Bibles, but you know the closest English equivalent is really the word happy. And so Jesus is talking about happiness. God promises a happiness to us that's real, and Jesus is describing in the Beatitudes how we experience that happiness. But let's not make the mistake of thinking that it's happiness like we normally experience in this world because that's just a feeling, a feeling that can be here one moment and gone the next. That's not what Jesus is talking about, something much deeper than that. He's talking about a deep level of inner contentment that's not affected by the circumstances of life. He's talking about a satisfaction that we can have deep down inside of us that never goes away and that is unaffected by the circumstances of life. That's what he's talking about when he promises this happiness that's real. The second truth is this, real happiness comes in unexpected ways. That's what we see clearly in the Beatitudes, and it's all about attitude. It's all about attitude. I know we've already talked about these truths multiple times, but that's really okay because we need to remember that one of the most effective ways to learn anything in the world today is through repetition. And as I said, the Beatitudes show us how we can experience a happiness that's real, a happiness that's deep down inside of us, and it does that by showing us or teaching us attitudes. Everyone say attitudes. Attitudes that lead to salvation. The Beatitudes give us attitudes that lead to salvation, and that word attitudes is critical because when it comes to salvation, what we need to remember is God is more concerned with your attitude than with your actions. I told you last week, it's not that our actions don't matter. They do. They absolutely do. They matter. But our actions have always got to be the result of right attitudes. Our actions have to flow from right attitudes. And I want to talk to you about that for just a few minutes in relation to Jesus' ministry, because so much of what we do in studying the Gospel of Matthew is we look at the earthly ministry of Jesus. And here's what I want you to understand. When Jesus began His earthly ministry uh, to the nation of Israel, to the Jewish people, the nation of Israel was in a desperate condition. They were in a desperate condition politically speaking. They were in a desperate condition economically speaking. And they were in a desperate condition spiritually speaking. Politically, because they had lost their freedom and they were suffering under the bondage of the Roman Empire. The Romans ruled over them and they hated that deeply. Economically, because the Romans didn't just exact or take from them an unfair amount of taxes. It was really a criminal amount of taxes, barely leaving them with enough money to survive. And they were in desperate times, spiritually speaking, because they were living under an oppressive religious system that was impossible to keep up with. And without question, the biggest level of desperation in their lives was related to this 
spiritual problem. I don't have time to talk about that in a lot of detail, and I'm sure that we have a lot of different levels of understanding about this in the service this morning. So let me just try to give you a summary of what I mean when I talk about them living under this, the burden of this oppressive religious system. And we're going to have to go backwards and go back to the Old Testament for just a moment to kind of set this summary. When Moses led the Israelites, the Jewish people, out of Egyptian bondage, and surely you're familiar with that this morning, if not from studying the Bible, you saw the movie The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston being Moses, right? So you know that. Or maybe if that's a little bit too old for you, maybe you saw the Disney movie The Prince of Egypt, and you know the story of how Moses was sent by God to lead the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage. When he did that, after he led them out of Egyptian bondage, this is what God did. God gave the Israelites, God gave the Jewish people the law of Moses to guide them. Oftentimes it's called the Mosaic law, the law of Moses or the Mosaic law. The law of Moses began with the Ten Commandments. We're familiar with the Ten Commandments, but it wasn't just the Ten Commandments. It also included very specific instructions about the way they were to live and about the way they were to worship. So it began with the Ten Commandments, but it included very specific instructions about the way they were to live and about the way they were to worship. Now, that's a very simple explanation of the law of Moses. And there were multiple reasons why God did this. I'm just going to mention two, and I think they're the two most important. First of all, God gave them the law of Moses because God wanted His people, the Israelites, the Jewish people, He wanted them to be distinct and different and set apart from all the other nations of the world. And so that's one of the reasons why He gave them this law, the law of Moses, to guide the way they lived and to guide the way they worshiped so that they would be different from everybody else. Listen, this is a big deal to God. It has been for a long, long time. It was a big deal with His chosen people, the Jews, and it's a big deal for you and me today as believers. God wants His children to be distinct and different, set apart from the rest of the world. The second reason that I'm going to mention, and this is really, really important for us to be able to understand this beatitude this morning, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. God wanted, he, God gave the law of Moses to His people because He wanted them to understand their inability to be right with Him on their own. Now, I want you to think about this with me for a moment. The reason why he did that was because God knew that no one, no one would be able to follow his law perfectly, which means that they would understand that they were falling short with regard to their relationship with him and that their efforts on their own to be right with him were never going to be enough. And so, that's one of the reasons why He gave them this law. He gave them this law so that they would be aware of their shortcoming. As they tried to follow it, it would expose the many different areas in life where they fell short, where they missed the mark of being who God wanted them to be. He wanted them to know that they couldn't do it on their own, be right with Him on their own, which would cause them to understand their need for Him. And in particular, their need for Him to provide them with a Savior. Look at this verse on the screen from Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. This is Paul talking about the law. And he says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous. Let's stop right there for a moment. A few weeks ago, we talked about the beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And we talked about what it means to be righteous. And I told you that the fundamental meaning of the word righteous is right with God. That's what it means. 
And so Paul says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous or no one will be declared right with God in his sight by observing the law. That's the law of Moses I just explained to you. Rather, through the law, we became conscious of sin. So God gave the law of Moses to his people so that they could be distinct and different and set apart from the rest of the world and so that they would know that on their own, they couldn't be right with God. They needed help. They needed a Savior. Now, having said that, I want you to listen to me close. When Jesus came into the world and began his earthly ministry, he encountered this desperate condition among the Jewish people from a spiritual perspective because the Jewish religious leaders had taken the law of Moses and twisted it into some kind of a legal code that could result in salvation, that could lead to salvation. Even though we just read Romans chapter 3 and verse 20 where Paul said that's not possible. But they had twisted it into a legal code that they believed could lead to salvation. And in addition to that, they had added a ridiculous number of rules and regulations to the law that created this rigid system of do's and don'ts and duties that were impossible to perform. And as a result, the entire nation of people, all of the Jewish people, felt nothing but guilt and fear and frustration when it came to their relationship with God. Guilt and fear and frustration. And you don't have to read the Gospels, which is the story of Jesus, very far to see the reality of this guilt, this fear, and this frustration. Let me show you a few places. You're in Matthew chapter 5. Turn to the left a couple of pages to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3 tells us the story of John the Baptist. I preached about this in this chapter several weeks ago. John the Baptist, of course, was the one who came to proclaim that Jesus was coming to pave the way for Jesus. And the first few verses of Matthew chapter 3 describe him and his ministry like this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Now listen to verses 5 and 6. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now everybody look up here. I don't know if you remember this or not, but I told you when we studied Matthew 3 before that thousands, everyone say thousands, thousands of people came to John the Baptist. Thousands. I told you in my study, I encountered commentators who said that there could have been as many as 10,000 people who came to the desert to hear John the Baptist and to be baptized by him. Now, let's ask ourselves the obvious question. How in the world does something like that happen? How in the world, in a day and age where there was no mass media to proclaim or spread news, how in the world could thousands of people have heard about John the Baptist in a way that drove them to the desert to hear what he had to say and end up being baptized him, confessing their sins and being baptized by him? It all happened word of mouth. Well, here's why it happened the way that it did, and this is what I believe with all my heart. It happened because this was a nation and people of, and, and, and this was a nation and group of people who were so overwhelmed with guilt and frustration with regard to their relationship with God that when they heard there was somebody preaching about sin, repentance, and forgiveness, they were there. Because it overwhelmed them. Their guilt and their frustration and their fear with regard to their relationship with God absolutely overwhelmed them. And they were looking anywhere to anyone who could try to give them some relief. And when they hear John the Baptist is preaching this message of repentance and people are confessing sin and being baptized, they say, I want to be a part of that. 
Because I don't want to live this way any longer. I don't want to feel this way any longer. I want to believe that I'm right with God. One of the most famous stories in the Gospels is the story of the rich young ruler. That's how it was when I was a kid. Now it's called the rich young man in my NIV Bible. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 19. Don't turn there. But it's a story of a man who, when you read his story, when you read about him, he was, he, from all, for all practical intents and purposes, he was perfect. He, by his own confession, had obeyed the law of Moses in every way from the time he was a child. And yet one day he ran up to Jesus, and this is what he said. This is what Matthew 19, 16 says. This is his story. He ran up to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now, why in the world, folks? Why in the world would somebody who, by their own admission, had followed the law and obeyed the law in detail from the time they were a child come to a place where they felt like they were needed to be driven to Jesus to ask him, what good thing do I need to do to get eternal life? Because there was obviously, obviously this emptiness, this gnawing emptiness and question inside of him with regard to his relationship with God. He didn't have any certainty. He just had guilt and frustration and fear. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan? The story of the Good Samaritan began one day. This is recorded in Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. It began one day when a guy who's identified as an expert in the law. Did you catch that? An expert in the law of Moses. Remember, I just told you about the law of Moses. A man who's an expert in the law asked Jesus one day this question. You know what it was? What must I do to inherit eternal life? An expert in the law. You seeing the theme here? I'm telling the entire nation of Israel, all the Jewish people, were just so overwhelmed with frustration and guilt and fear with regard to their relationship with God that every day the burning question of their life is, am I right with God? Is it possible for me one day to be able to see God? Am I going to go to heaven one day? One of the greatest stories in the Gospel of John is the story of a man named Nicodemus who came to Jesus one night under the cover of darkness. Listen to his story. I'm going to read three verses from John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It said, Now there was a man of the Pharisees. Of the Pharisees, this was the religious elite. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. And in reply, this is what verse says, In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now, I want you to listen to me. This is what's great about this. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night because he's got a question that is burning a hole in his heart. And before he's even able to ask the question, Jesus gives him the answer. You know what Nicodemus' question was? How do I know if I'm right with God? How do I know if I'm going to go to heaven one day? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And before he could even articulate the question, Jesus told him, you must be born again. And then he went on to explain what that means. Now, I could give you other examples, but I'm going to stop right there. Jesus, I'm telling you, I want you, this is what I want you to understand. Jesus came to a people who felt this strong sense of desperation and fear and guilt when it came to their religious lives. And so when Jesus sat down on the Mount of Beatitudes one day to deliver the Sermon on the Mount, he knew the biggest question on the minds of everyone there who was listening to him was this single question, what do I need to know? What do I need to do in order to be right with God? And so he answered that question in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8 when he said, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. He says, here's what it takes to be right with God. Here's what it takes to know for sure you're going to one day see God. You've got to have a pure heart. You've got to have a pure heart. It's not about what you do on the outside. It's about what you do on the inside. It's about the condition of your heart on the inside. 
Now, I want to tell you something that might seem a little odd to you when you first hear it. But there's, I think you can make the case that, that the beatitude we're looking at today, Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. I think you can make the case that of all the beatitudes, it's the most important one. Now, some of you might hear that and push back and say, well, pastor, if it's the most important one, why wasn't it the first one? Because it wasn't. It's actually the sixth one. So how could you say it was the most important one? Well, here's my simple explanation. Because the Beatitudes have a connectedness to each other, you have to work your way to it. Think about it like this. Jesus begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. So blessed are those who recognize their own spiritual poverty. Blessed are those who recognize their own spiritual bankruptcy and their helplessness before God. And then he said, blessed are those who mourn. So people who recognize their spiritual poverty, then they mourn over their condition. They mourn over the sin that causes that spiritual poverty and spiritual bankruptcy. And then he says, blessed are the meek. So when you recognize your spiritual poverty and you mourn over it, that doesn't make you assertive and aggressive. That makes you meek. That makes you gentle. That makes you humble. And then he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. So your spiritual poverty goes to mourning, goes to meekness, goes to hungering, hungering for righteousness, to be right with God. And then he says, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. So your spiritual poverty goes to mourning, goes to meekness, goes to hungering, goes to being merciful because God has been merciful to you, and it's the mercy that you receive from God that allows you to be pure in heart, which gives you the promise that one day you'll see God. Now, I'll let you choose to believe whatever you want to on your own about whether or not that's the most important beatitude, but it makes sense to me. And so Jesus comes to a world where people believe that the external practice of religion is the most important thing that you need to do, and he shatters that belief by saying what's most important is not what you do on the outside. What's most important is whether or not your heart is pure on the inside. Can you just imagine the way the religious leaders who were leading this, this, the teaching of this oppressive religious system responded to what Jesus was saying? It destroyed everything that they were teaching. It destroyed everything that they were demonstrating with their lives. They spent their, they spent their lives trying to be right with God based on what they did on the outside, based on rules and regulations and duties and rituals and going through the motions of religious activity. And what Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes and what he does in particular in Matthew chapter 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God, is he's destroying that notion that you're right with God through your actions. You're only right with God when you're pure on the inside. Remember, God is much more concerned with our, our attitude than he is our actions. So here's an important question. What does it mean to be pure in heart? What does it really mean? The word heart that Jesus uses there in the original language of the New Testament is the Greek word cardia. We get the English word cardiac from that word. And the most significant thing about that word is it reflects something that's internal. It reflects something that's on the inside of our lives. In the Bible, the heart, the word heart is used metaphorically to, res to represent our inner lives. It represents the source of our attitudes and our thoughts and our motives. In fact, the simplest way to describe it is in the Bible, the heart is used to represent the mind. Look at this verse on the, sc on the screen from Proverbs 4.23. Because this is the single, listen to me, the single best explanation of the reality of the heart from God's perspective that you can find in all the Bible. Read it with me. Let me hear your voices. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Everything in life flows from the heart. Everything. It is the source, the deepest internal source 
of who we are. The the heart is the source of all things. It's the source of all the best things about our lives. It's the source of all the worst things about our lives. It's the source of our lives physiologically in that it pumps our blood through our bodies. And it's the source of our lives metaphorically in that it directs the course of our lives. And so Jesus is saying that before anyone will ever have the opportunity or the assurance that they're going to one day see God, there has to be a substantial change and a substantial transformation at the core, at the very core of their being. You have to have a pure heart, a pure heart. The word pure is the Greek word katharos. And literally translated, it means to cleanse from impurity. We get, the, we get the word katharos from the Greek word katharizo. We get the English word catharsis from that word. And everybody knows what a catharsis is or what it's like to have a cathartic moment. It's a cleansing experience. You're walking around with some weight or some guilt or some hidden thing in your life, and it's just burdening you, and finally you get the opportunity to, to talk about it, to let it out, to spill it out, and they say it's like having a cathartic moment. It's a cleansing kind of experience. That's what's at the heart of this word pure. When Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, he's talking about being cleansed on the inside. Blessed are those whose hearts have been cleansed. And listen to me. I hope we understand this, and if we don't, you need to really listen close. There's only one way this can happen. There's only one way that your heart can be cleansed, and that's through the experience of salvation. And salvation is an experience that you don't control. Salvation is not something that's the result of what you do, your efforts, your work, your goodness. Salvation is something we experience as a result of the love and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. It's the cleansing that comes from God. That's why whenever I talk to somebody about what they need to know and what they need to do in order to be right with God, I tell them the absolute first thing they have to do is they have to admit that they're sinners. The first step to being right with God, the first step to having your heart changed, transformed, to having a pure heart is to admit that you're a sinner. You can't receive cleansing until you admit that you need it. And that's what happens in salvation. It's the cleansing of your heart, not literally in a physical sense, but spiritually in that your heart goes from being hardened by sin to being softened by Christ. So being pure in heart starts with what God does inside of us when we recognize and admit the reality of our sin and we turn to Jesus. We believe in Jesus. We put our faith and our trust in Jesus. We follow Jesus. I'll talk more about that in just a moment. But beyond that, and I don't have time to talk about this, not because I'm just running out of time, but because it really requires its own whole separate sermon. Beyond that, even though being pure in heart starts with what God does inside of us, Being pure in heart continues as we, as a result, commit ourselves to living pure lives. This is how it works. God purifies our hearts through salvation, and as a result, we commit to living pure lives. And so listen to me. Everybody look up here. This is God's expectation for you if you're a Christian. This is God's expectation for me. God expects us to use a lot of discernment, a lot of discretion about the way we live our lives. He expects us to be discerning and discreet about the things that we allow ourselves to see and the things that we allow to come into our minds and the things that we allow to influence our lives and our choices and on and on and on. Think about from the perspective of parents. As a parent, don't you, don't you really, aren't you really careful and conscientious about guarding and protecting your children and what they see, what they experience, where they go, what they do, and what they learn? God expects us to be the same way about our own lives. Because once he makes our hearts pure through salvation, he expects us to live pure lives. This is a really big deal. 
Look at these words on the screen from 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. This is the Apostle Paul writing, and he says, since we have these promises, all right, stop right there. Now, here's what I want you to do. Everybody should go home today at some point, and you should read 2 Corinthians chapter 6, because in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we see the promises he's talking about. So he says, since we have these promises, and the promises that he's talking about there are promises related to a new kind of relationship with him, a new kind of relationship with him. God's promise of a new relationship. And so he says, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for Christ. You know, when you became a Christian, when God makes your heart pure, the Bible says you become a temple of the Holy Spirit. God's living inside of you. That's a pretty big incentive to be careful about the way you live. This is the expectation of God for all of us. And this is what it means to be pure in heart. It happens first and foundationally and most important through what God offers in salvation, but it continues as we make a commitment to live pure lives. Well, here's a second question. What's the result of being pure in heart? Well, it's pretty obvious. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. For they will see God. The obvious answer then is you're going to see God in a future sense. That's how we would first understand it. In a future, future sense, in the sense of eternal life, in going to heaven one day, you're going to see God. You can have that assurance. You can know for sure that's going to happen. That's the future meaning. But listen to me close because this might be the very best part of the whole sermon. There's another meaning for they will see God that's not based on something that happens in the future. When Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, he's also talking about having the ability to see God right now, right now where you are in your life every single day. How? Well, he's talking about going through life and being able to see the presence of God at work in your life, the hand of God at work in your life, the comfort of God at work in your life, the provision of God at work in your life, the unfolding plan of God at work in your life, and on and on and on. And having the ability to see that right now today. Let me explain why I say that. I don't want to get too technical, and this is going to sound technical. But it all has to do with that phrase, they will see God. If you came up here and stood next to me this morning on the the podium, and you looked at my Bible, I got my Bible open to Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes. And right down here in the Beatitudes, next in verse 8, where it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I took a yellow highlighter, and I highlighted the words, they will see God, and then I circled them with a pen Because those are significant words. In the original language of the New Testament, I want you to listen to me close. Those words, they will see God, are written in the future indicative tense and the middle voice. Now, I know that's just like, what in the world does that mean? I'm going to say it again, okay? It's not going to be on the screen, so you might want to write it down. Those words are written in the future indicative tense and the middle voice. Now, practically speaking, here's what that means. That means the most literal translation for what our English Bibles say is they will see God is this. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will be continuously seeing God for themselves. Continuously seeing God for themselves. 
And here's how we need to understand that. When your heart is made pure through salvation, and as a result, you commit to living a pure life, then you're going to be living in the presence of God like you never experienced before, like you never even imagined possible before. And when you live in the presence of God like that, you're going to develop a knowledge of God and a fellowship with God that's going to allow you to see Him through new eyes, new spiritual eyes, and that means you'll see Him in every single thing that's happening in your life. I'm not saying that it's always going to be easy, but you'll have the ability to see Him in every that happens in your lives. Now, that's not hard in the good things, in the blessings, because we can all see God in the good things and the blessings, but that means you'll also see God in the difficult things and in the dark moments and in the trial and the trouble. You'll be able to see Him, His hand, His provision, His comfort, His plan, and on and on and on. Now, I don't know about you, but I crave that kind of knowledge of God. How about you? Because it's those difficult, dark moments of trial and trouble that make me sometimes just want to crawl in a hole and quit. And so Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. They will see God. Well, Tyson can come and we'll get ready to close. And so let me just ask you a question this morning. Based on all that we've talked about, what's the condition of your heart? I mean, that's a question all of us need to answer. What's the condition of your heart? Let me ask you this. I wonder if there's anybody here today, and, and, and if you were to be honest, you would say this is the truth of your life, and, and, and this is just the way you maybe were raised. You were raised in a church setting where you kind of were taught or you kind of came to believe that being a Christian is all about just going through certain motions, just checking things off of a, of a to-do list and making sure you avoid a don't-do list and going through some rituals and some duties. And so your whole life with regard to God is tied up in just going through these motions and these external actions, and if that's the case, I've got to believe that there's still an emptiness inside of you and that you still have moments when you have fear and you have doubt about whether or not your life is good with God, and if you died today, you'd go to heaven. That's a pretty big question and concern, don't you think? It doesn't have to be that way. There's another kind of a life that Jesus offers that can take all that away. And i got to believe that there are probably people here and listening to me online who even though you, maybe that doesn't describe you, you were raised in church and you were taught these truths and you embraced these truths, but honestly, honestly, if you, were to, if you were to be open, you'd have to say that there are a lot of moments in your life when you have questions and doubts and fears about whether or not your life is right with God. I, listen to me, folks. This is true. I, I'm, I'm so sad to say this, but I, can tell, I can't tell you how many times over the last 40-some years of my life that I have sat in a hospital room next to a hospital bed with somebody who was coming to the end of their life who would be like that rich young ruler for all practical intents and purposes. As you looked at them, you thought their life was good because they'd lived a, a right life and, and things they, they, they knew and they understood and they did the right things. And yet, I can't tell you how many times I've sat next to somebody who had tears rolling down their cheeks asking me, do you think I'm going to go to heaven? You think God's going to let me in heaven when I die? You don't have to live that way. None of us are ever going to be perfect in life. None of us. We're going to fall short over and over again. But the Bible says we can have the assurance that one day we'll see God if we let him change our hearts. And anybody can do that today. Anybody. Father in heaven, thanks for a chance to talk about these things today. And I pray that you would just speak to our hearts and convict our hearts right at the point of our